Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. There is a difference between knowing something and really knowing something. A Greek philosopher Plato had this picture that he would talk about. Uh, Some people sitting in a cave and they were facing a wall of the cave and behind them there was a fire uh, such that anything that walked between where this fire was and, and the people, they could see a shadow, they could see a silhouette on the wall. And for people who that's been their only experience of life, it's like that's what they think that all of reality is. Now, these shadows that they see are are true. They're they're the right shape, they're the right outline. They do give some true indication of what's going on. And yet, if they could turn around and they could see the people or the things that made those shadows, they'd realise that the perception they had There's so much more available. There's a three-dimensional view. There's a full colour view that would transform how they saw these things. And when I came across this, it made me think straight away of the way we see God, the way we understand God to be. We might know some things about God that are true. We, We might have caught a glimpse of something of him. And yet, how far short does our understanding of God fall from the full three-dimensional, full-colour view that we could grasp if we were able to see him more clearly than we do? It's one of the things I actually think about this quite a lot. It plays on my mind. What would our lives look like if we really believed deep down the things that we believe? Would our lives look the same as they do? Or would things change? I think a lot of the time it's not that people are lying and, or being hypocrites and saying they believe one thing and they don't really believe it. I, I think somehow there's just a disconnect be, between the head belief and the heart belief. So what I want to shoot for today, and I, I think this is where Paul's going in the next bit of Ephesians that we're looking at in this series that we're doing, is that we would grasp this kind of fuller, more, more three-dimensional, more full colour, as I was saying, this grasp of the truth of God. And, and if we can get our eyes attuned to this, it will transform our lives. So we'll be looking at this letter to the church in Ephesus, a church started by Paul. He found a, a group of disciples there who'd heard some things of the truth, but were missing a lot of bits as well. They'd not heard of the Holy Spirit. So he taught them more fully about God and they responded. He baptised them and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and they became the core of this church in Ephesus. Now, after spending a while with them, training them up in the ways of the Lord, appointing some leaders over them. Paul then moved on. Uh, He carried on his missionary journeys going to other places and he was supporting them from a distance. He would write letters back, uh, this letter in particular, to help them. Uh, And so over this term we're going to be looking at this letter to the Ephesians. Just to give you the big ideas of what's going on in the letter, here's a summary of it by Tony Evans. It's, It's central to the message of Ephesians is the recreation of the human family according to God's original kingdom intention. 
In his kingdom, Jews and Gentiles are brought together in Christ as one people. For those who trust in Jesus, the distinction between Jew and Gentile is abolished by his sacrificial death. So no hindrance remains for reuniting all humanity as the people of God with Christ as the head. This new body is empowered by the power of the Holy Spirit to enable those comprising it to serve together in unity and have changed lives in the fulfilment of God's kingdom program. The latter part of Ephesians shows what this looks like in practice, highlighting family relationships and spiritual warfare as Paul offers keys to living in Christ. And a couple of the big themes of the book are picked up in that little summary. Uh, one of them is that it all happens in Christ. It's not just that we receive these blessings from God arbitrarily. It's all because of our union with Jesus. We see this little phrase, in Christ, over and over and over again. Our relationship to Christ is paramount. And then secondly, the other word that uh, I notice comes up loads in Ephesians is the word us. He's speaking to a community as a community. Often we like to individualise Christianity as though God is blessing me. But the way Ephesians speaks about the church and this new humanity, this new people that Tony Evans mentioned, that's the theme. That in Christ, us as the church are blessed by God and being made into this one new man. So Andy kicked off the series last time by taking us through the first part of chapter one and wasn't he just amazing showing us how we have been blessed in Christ, how we've been chosen, how we've been adopted, how we've been redeemed, how we've been forgiven, how we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. This is what God has done for us and we pick it up now for the second part of chapter one from verse 15 to the end of the chapter. So please do open your Bibles and follow along. And let me read our passage. Verse 15. For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Paul's heard some things about these Christians. And in verse 15, he tells of the reputation they have for faith in the Lord Jesus and love towards the saints. It's a great reputation to have, isn't it? That uh, If we say that this is a letter about being in Christ. Well, their faith is in Christ. Their relationship with Christ is a good one. And also, he said it's about us. It's about the church together. He says, you have love for all the saints. You're living this thing out. This is a church that's doing well. And as Andy pointed out last time, 
The letter to Ephesians is one of the few in the New Testament that isn't written to solve a particular problem. It's written as a letter of encouragement to some people who are walking well in the faith. Sometimes at CCM when we're looking to um, appoint new leaders or uh, give people responsibility, some of the characteristics that we say we're looking for, one of them is spiritual velocity. What's your life with Christ like? Are you growing in your spiritual walk? We also talk about relational intelligence. Do you play well with other people or do you rub people up the wrong way a bit? Now, these Ephesian Christians seem to be doing well on both counts. How do you pray for people like that? How do you pray for people who are doing well? It's easy, isn't it, to pray for people if there's a particular presenting problem. How do you pray for people who are really faithfully and lovingly living out their Christian walk? Well, here's what you do. You give thanks to God. You say, thank you, God. I'm so grateful for what you're doing in their lives. And he says, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I can guarantee you. When you're living faithfully for Christ, when you've got faith to him and love to other people, uh, your leaders here are giving thanks for you. We're so thankful as God is at work and that's shown in how you conduct yourself and how you live. As well as that though, as well as giving thanks, he prays for them for more. He wants them to have a greater sight of God. Maybe back to that Plato thing that I started with. You know, now he's praying that you'll know that you'll be taken to a new level of insight into who God is. That's not that what you believed before was wrong. It's not saying, oh no, you've moved on to something different. It is the same thing that you've seen, but you've seen it even more clearly and your hearts have become even more inflamed and excited by it. You see, the thing with spiritual maturity is it's not something you ever arrive at. It's always about the destination of travel. There's always more to learn. There's always more of God to see. There's always a deeper place to go to. And so Paul is praying for them to be blasted in the face with a revelation of God that will absolutely knock their socks off. That's what I want each one of us to experience this morning. I'm just going to pick out from those verses a few of the things that Paul wants for them. And the first one is he wants them to have an eye-opening revelation of God's Spirit. An eye-opening revelation of God's Spirit. I wonder if you've ever had an eye-opening moment. Uh, a moment where something you might have read about, something you might have heard of or knew, just actually sunk in. I think for me, the first time I travelled to a third world country and I'd seen pictures and I'd read statistics about can slum live in and how different people live. But until I was there myself, I never really quite got what this was. My eyes have been opened. And Paul prays for these Ephesian Christians that they get an eye opening revelation of God. Verse 17, he says he's prayed that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. That's what he wants for them, the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. Think about your heart. Now, imagine a couple of little eyes on it. And what we often do is we'll have those eyes closed. 
Maybe we'll be learning in our brains, we'll be looking with our physical eyes, we'll be hearing with our ears and things will be going in. But somewhere on the way down to our heart, there's some kind of blockage that doesn't get through. He said, I want it to get through. I want those eyes of your hearts to see and grasp the truth of God. I think about it as sometimes when I go and get a new prescription on my glasses and it's changed and I've been going around with these glasses that, that they help, I can see things. But when I get the new one, the more accurate prescription, it's like, wow, how did I miss so much? These new glasses show me everything way more clearly. He wants the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. The way this comes about, he says, is through God giving them the Holy Spirit. We've been talking about the Spirit a lot lately. It's not that they don't have the Holy Spirit. You can't be a Christian without having the Holy Spirit. But the Bible talks about an ongoing filling of the Spirit, that they're to be filled again and again and again. And one of the things that the Spirit does is he reveals to us the truth of Christ. He opens our eyes so that we can see him and we can know him. It's what Jesus said in John chapter 15. When the Helper comes who I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Emma tells a story of when uh, she first came into a church setting. Now, she thought a bit about God. She'd had conversations about God. But it was during a time of worship when the presence of God met with her. It's like those heart eyes got opened. It's like, Wow! This is different to what I've been talking about. It was just an intellectual thing. But now I see God is real. And then she spent weeks laughing at the situation that God is real and had met with her. What we're talking about is whenever the truth of who God is, maybe truth you already know, but whenever it hits home deep, this is it. So it could be any of the stuff that Andy brought out last time about being chosen by God, about being adopted by God, about being redeemed by God. These are all amazing truths. But when they go from just things that we're aware of to things that we appreciate and get and have sunk in deep, that's what he's talking about. And that's what he's praying for here. And this is something, it's interesting that he's praying for this. He's not just saying, hey guys, make sure this happens. He knows that something deep and spiritual needs to occur. Jesse Connolly says, I don't think Paul would have prayed that our father would give us a spirit of revelation or wisdom in the knowledge of him for such wondrous things if they were super easy to see as we went about our day-to-day -day life. She's right, isn't she? If these things were just commonplace, why would he need to pray for them? There's something of a supernatural revelation we need to receive. So what is it we need to see? Well, one of the things he picks out here is the immeasurable scope of God's power. The immeasurable scope of God's power. I love watching World's Strongest Man competitions. It's kind of silly background viewing around Christmas, but it's good fun. These big, massive dudes picking up like rocks and putting them on shelves or pulling lorries. To think about the power a human body has is amazing. And uh, I was doing uh, a few sums. I looked at the Blackpool illuminations. And I wondered how much power would it take to keep them going for an hour? And basically the way it came out is the strongest person you can imagine, the most power that a human can generate. Think like a world's strongest man or maybe like a sprinter going at full pelt. The power they generate, they'd have to be doing that for 57 years. 
to light up Blackpool Illuminations for just one hour. That's a lot, isn't it? That's a lot of power needed. How much power would it be needed? How much power would be needed to power our city, the city of Manchester? And for that, it would take a strongman or a sprinter six billion years of going to power our city for a year. I thought, okay, well, maybe the power of a strongman isn't it. What, what's the most powerful thing I can think of? So, well, the sun, it's a massive ball of uh, nuclear explosions, isn't it, going off all the time. That's got a lot of power. And the power of the sun could power our city of Manchester a quadrillion times over. And Paul, he's praying that we would understand that the power of God that's at work in us is greater than all of it. Because everything I've just told you, the power is measurable. In verse 19, he says he wants us to know the immeasurable greatness of his power. The power of God cannot be quantified. And it's towards us who believe, according to the work of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. You see, the demonstration of the power of God is raising Christ Jesus from the dead and seating him in the heavenly realm. None of the other things I listed can do that. It's not in the world's strongest man, is it? Can you raise someone from the dead? Because none of them can. The power it takes to power the Blackpool Illuminations or Manchester, even the power of the sun, doesn't have the power over life and death. That power belongs to God alone. His power is greater than all of it. And that same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead, that gave life to that dead body and brought him back again and then enthroned him in the heavenly realm. That's the power that's at work in you and in me. Now, if I asked you the question, if I said to you, do you believe God is powerful? You'd probably say yes. Yes, I do. But wouldn't it change everything if you really believed that deep down? Wouldn't it change the boldness with which you lived and walked and obeyed and prayed? Wouldn't it change the confidence in your faith, wouldn't it change the way you worship, that you worship one with that kind of power? Wouldn't there be kind of like an electric fear, a good fear, then mingled with a tangible love when you know he uses that power for good? Wouldn't that change the way you pray, praying bigger prayers, praying more faith-filled prayers because of the power of God? And then, He wants us to see that combined with this power is the absolute authority of God's son. Because his power raised him from the dead, but has now enthroned him. He has the highest authority. You're sometimes in a situation, aren't you, where you're looking for the person who's in charge. Maybe when you were at school and something kicked off, you'd want to find the teacher, the one who could do something about whatever the thing was, or in the workplace, you look at and the, the, the chain of command, the line of management, see who, who actually has enough sway, who has enough authority to make a decision and get something done. If you escalate things high enough, the one with every authority is Jesus. Verse 21 says, he's far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. Not only in this age, but also in the one to come. Now you could break that down to the small scale and think about the the boss in your workplace. Jesus has a higher authority than your boss. 
or you could go big scale. Jesus has a higher authority than Boris Johnson. You could go earthly and spiritual. Jesus has authority over every earthly ruler, every king, every president, every prime minister, every CEO. Also in the spiritual realm, he has power over every angel and demon and spiritual being. He has power over Satan. Jesus is in the highest place. And sometimes you see the spiritual and the earthly get intertwined together. Jesus has authority over all of it now and in the age to come. This will always be the way. Sometimes we perceive other authorities and we get a bit intimidated when we see someone who has a lot of sway. It will change our hearts. It will change our outlook to realise Jesus has ultimate authority over all of it. Every other ruler is under his feet. Think about that scene in The Lion King. You've got the hyenas and their boss is Scar. Scar's there with them. But someone mentions the name of the Lion King, Mufasa. And they start to shiver. They get um, shivers running down their spine. They're trembling. Mufasa, Mufasa, the name makes them tremble. And then it's the name of Jesus that makes Satan tremble. In fact, if Vladimir Putin was to get a glimpse of Jesus Christ in his glory, he'd wet his pants. The power and authority of Jesus is so much higher and greater than all of it. Sometimes we think of the world as a good and evil, an imbalance, as though they're competing against each other. That's not it. There's no evil power that can rival the goodness and grace and glory of Jesus. He's on the throne. He rules over all of it. When we face evil, we should know that the one who we love and serve is greater than it. I love the example in the Bible. And there's three young men in the Old Testament, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. And the king wants to throw them into a fiery furnace. That's some authority being used, isn't it? And yet they look to the authority of God and they basically say, look, we know that God can deliver us from this. Confidence in his authority. And we think he will. And even if he doesn't, we're not going to do what you want and worship you. You see, they have confidence in the higher authority who they're serving. And the final thing I want us to pick out then is the astonishing privilege of God's church. It's all well and good to talk about the authority and the power that Christ has. But then the key question, well, what's he going to do with it? Yeah, it's good for him that he's on the throne and can do what he wants. But how will he use it? And we're told in this passage that he will use it for the sake of the church. And that's the staggering thing that Ephesians lays out and keeps coming back to over and over again. In verse 19, he talks about the, in verse 18, sorry, the inheritance that we have in the saints. Not just the inheritance of the saints, but the glorious inheritance that God has for us. It's something we find in this people that he's making. Maybe even more staggering is verse 22. He puts all things under his feet and he gave him as head over all things to the church. We've just learned about the ultimate power and authority of Jesus. And now we learn that God gave him as a gift to the church, to be the head of the church. So the one who is above all is given to us, to this church that he is building. I've had a number of conversations with people recently about uh, those who are trying to deconstruct church, disassociate, do church their way. 
rather than the thing that God has built. So no, I'm going to step away from that. I'm not going to be in fellowship with all these people. Yeah, I'll still listen to some teaching on the internet. Maybe I'll sing a few worship songs. And I'll meet up with a few people like me who I get on with. And they're trying to make their own version without having to associate with others. And there's a number of responses. I mean, it's an arrogant thing, isn't it? For what, but it just makes me think, what could you possibly recreate that can rival this thing that God is making? If you want to step out of the church that God has brought together, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, the inheritance of the saints, the thing to which Jesus has been given as the head, and you want to step out of that and do your own thing, what could you possibly recreate that can rival this thing that is beautiful, is glorious, that is part of God's future eschatological vision? You can't create anything that can come close to what God is creating in the church. I know the church hasn't always been perfect. And I know people have got stories where things haven't, gone as they'd have liked and this is something we are warned about in the new testament that uh, along with those who faithfully and truly follow christ will be those who, who gather with the number wolves with the sheep who are not walking with christ who are seeking to harm we, we need to be vigilant and even those who are sincere are not perfect in my experience of the church in my 20 years as a christian has been so much more good than bad, so much more blessing than issue. You know, for all the rotors and setting up chairs and endless WhatsApp groups, and bearing with one another at our worst, the church is the hope of the world. And the church is something that God is committed to and has poured himself into. And he uses his power and authority to bless the church. I was meeting with some of the church leaders this week and uh, we had a guy speaking, Simon, who leads the movement of churches that we're a part of. And uh, one of the things he said just hit me a bit. He, he, he was reflecting on what he's noticed around the time of the pandemic. And one observation he made is uh, some people who pre-pandemic had really high faith levels, really high expectation levels when it came to God moving, answering prayer, healing, prophetic, things like that. I just noticed that for many people, the expectation has just been dialed down a notch now we're regathered uh, and going at things again and we're just feeling a bit of a stirring in many parts that no we want to step up we believe that God is real God is active we believe that God has power we believe that he uses that power for the sake of the church so now is a moment to step forward with boldness with expectation with faith, that our eyes would be opened, that we'd see God more clearly and that we live for him and go for it more fully. I want to go for some prayer for healing this morning. We're going to do that in a bit, but I want us to respond by singing a song. I've asked Jamie just to lead us in this song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, echoing the prayer that Paul prays for these Ephesians. We need the eyes of our hearts to be open. We need to see Christ clearly and then we need to respond to what he's doing and live for him.